Chapter forty three of Just As I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just As I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter forty three Morton's Brilliant Idea. Morton Blake went home that afternoon confirmed in his belief in Sir Everard's guilt. That belief had taken root in his mind in spite of himself, and had slowly grown upon him as time went by. Shafto Jebb's story of the hoof-prints of a second horse on the spot where the murder was committed fitted curiously with the story of the finding of the spur, and the groom's disappearance gave weight to his evidence, for it indicated that he had been tampered with by someone in Sir Everard's interest. And now Lucy Green's deathbed confession made the whole mystery clear set before morton's eyes as in a picture the tragedy of his father's death the husband loving deeply deeply wronged and avenging himself horribly upon his treacherous friend dearly as morton loved his father and bitterly as he deplored his untimely fate he could not as a man withhold his pity from the murderer had the two men met formally face to face as they might have done fifty years ago and the lover had died by the hand of the betrayed husband the world could hardly have condemned the successful duellist. It was just possible that Walter Blake had not fallen without a struggle for life, that he had wrestled with his assailant before he received his death-stroke. It was hardly consistent with Sir Everard's character and education to have played the stealthy assassin. But that his hands had been dyed in Walter Blake's blood, that the man who had just died in Portland prison had played a fool's part, and accused himself of a crime he had not committed, Morton was thoroughly convinced. He remembered Sir Everard's reluctance to accept the vagabond's confession, his willingness to let the man escape, how he had been incredulous from the first. He remembered his ghastly face in the witness-box when his dead wife's name had been imported into the inquiry. Now, he told himself, he knew that Sir Everard was the murderer. It was no longer a matter of suspicion, a darkly brooding fear. It was conviction, and more than conviction, it was knowledge. What was he to do? Humphrey Vargas was dead. Justice to him demanded no sacrifice from the living. He had passed altogether out of the question, and, anxious as Mrs. Barnard was to clear her children from the reproach involved in her father's supposed guilt, it would have been hard to sacrifice Dulcie's tenderest feelings to a morbid sensitiveness on the part of a vagabond's daughter. Mrs. Barnard's children must take their chance, thought Morton. Their grandfather inflicted this disgrace upon his name of his own free will, being a thief and a vagabond already and it is no duty of mine to wipe the stain from his grandchildren's pedigree. Two considerations were now paramount in his mind. First, the thought that his father's dishonour must be kept from the gossip of the newspapers and the tittle-tattle of clubs and coteries. It would be a poor thing to avenge his father's death by bringing Sir Everard to the dock, if in so doing he must reveal the one dark spot in his father's life, the one dishonour in an honourable career, to the malignant scrutiny of a world that loves to hear of sin in high places. Secondly, for Dulcie's sake, for the love of her who must ever seem to him purest and sweetest among women, he would do much to shield Sir Everard from the law, even while he longed to pour upon him the vials of an orphan son's wrath. He walked in Tangley Wood till the summer light was deepening into shadow, 
brooding upon what he had heard, meditating upon the duty that lay before him, and thinking how he could best make that duty fit in with the other claims upon his time and thought. His ambition, that ardent desire to be of some use in his generation, to leave the world in some wise better than he found it, which is the loftiest kind of ambition, had been reawakened by Lizzie Hardman's influence. Life, which for a while had seemed a burden to him, had again become full of work and hope. His days were no longer empty, albeit the rosy light of first love shone upon them no more. He had taught himself to believe that there were other joys for which a man might live, the delight of success in good work, the rapture of improving the lives of other people. The election at Blackford was to take place at the end of the session, and it was already known in the big bustling town that Morton Blake was going to stand. His speeches at Highclere and the pamphlet on compulsory education which he had lately published had won him friends among the most enlightened section of the working classes. He was not a man to please extreme radicals. He had the warmest sympathy with the operatives' claims and wrongs, but he saw in trade unionism disadvantages and perils in the future which outweighed the benefits to be derived from it in the present. He had therefore openly declared himself adverse to the system, and had in so doing hazarded his popularity among a constituency chiefly consisting of working men. But he had the courage of his opinions, and was prepared to defend them in the teeth of dead cats and rotten eggs, or any symbolism by which the sons of toil might choose to express their opinions. Lizzie had told him that he was sure of success at Blackford, that he would there be appreciated and understood, and of late he had fallen, quite unconsciously, into the habit of thinking Miss Hardman the most enlightened person among his acquaintances. She has such a well-balanced mind, such a calm, dispassionate way of looking at things, that I don't think she would be led astray by her own regard for me, he told himself, and if it were only out of gratitude for all her goodness to me, I ought to pay her the poor compliment of taking her advice. He had thought a good deal about Lizzie lately, giving her all the thought he had to spare after the one absorbing idea of Sir Everard's guilt, and the secondary consideration of his own parliamentary prospects. He was deeply impressed with a sense of obligation to Lizzie for her devotion to him during his illness and his slow return to health. He wanted to testify his gratitude in some permanent and substantial manner, and upon this very evening he found an opportunity of taking his Aunt Dora into his confidence and asking her advice in the matter. They were loitering about the garden together, looking at the standard roses, in the cultivation whereof Miss Blake took special pride, while the two girls played lawn tennis with Lord Bevel and Lady Frances, who had dropped in after dinner. Frances and Morton seemed to have grown less intimate since his illness. He knew that she had become Dulcie's bosom friend, and he shrank with a morbid sensitiveness from any conversation which might lead to the mention of Dulcie's name. Frances saw that he in some measure avoided her. She was pained and wounded by his coldness, but she was too generous to be angry. "'There was a time when a cold look from him hurt me like a sharp sword,' she said to herself. "'But that time is past and gone. Morton is no longer all the world to me.' Indeed, I almost wonder that I could ever have cared about such a commonplace young man. "'Auntie,' said Morton, with a sudden seriousness, as they stood before a superb Marshal Neal, "'has Lizzie any money of her own?' 
why morton what a question she has plenty of money but if you mean by inheritance not a penny her people were quite poor her grandfather and yours were fellow workmen together in the same foundry but while your grandfather climbed to the top of the ladder hers remained at the bottom they were staunch friends to the last and when i heard that matthew hardman's eldest son had been left a widower with six children i felt i should be showing respect to my dear father's memory by taking the smallest of them off his hands altogether and adopting her as my own poor matthew died soon after and lizzie's nearest relation is his brother who was very good and helpful in planting out the three surviving children of course i shall leave lizzie well provided for she must know that though i have never told her so in plain words oh of course dearest auntie but in the meantime lizzie has no money that is absolutely her own i don't know what you mean by absolutely her own i give her an allowance for her gowns and pocket money it is paid quarterly and is as much her own as money can be she spends very little of it upon herself dear child for it's her delight to help others hmm. and every time she receives this allowance she must feel a sense of obligation it is a gift however freely given not an income arising from capital in her own possession good gracious morton what a commercial mind you must have what difference can it make to her a good deal i imagine to a girl of sensitive nature lizzie loves me too well and is too sure of my love to feel any obligation in the matter my dear aunt the sense of obligation is just the one feeling that cannot be eradicated from the human mind in some natures it cometh up as the flower we call gratitude in others it is a weed that strangles affection now i am at this moment labouring under the sense of obligation to lizzie and i want to prove to her that i am grateful you know how more than good she was to me during my illness can i ever forget it well now i want to reward her kindness i can never extinguish the obligation in a really substantial manner and i've been thinking that i could hardly do better than invest say four thousand pounds in her own name in northwestern stock and quietly hand her the certificates in an envelope with my love that would give her about one hundred and sixty pounds a year and she need no longer be dependent upon you for her gowns and bonnets morton cried miss blake turning indignantly upon her nephew i'm astonished at you oh my dearest auntie i am surprised at your want of proper feeling what do you think that such devotion such tenderness as lizzie's are to be bought and paid for oh well, no of course not but i think such goodness ought to be recompensed in some substantial manner that is only another way of saying that it ought to be paid for i did not think you could be so unkind oh that's rather rough upon a fellow auntie when he's trying to be kind it only shows me how little you understand lizzie's nature i am very glad you mooted the question to me rather than to her had you made such a proposition to lizzie herself you would have broken her heart is she so sensitive she is very sensitive where you're concerned the phrase struck morton as curious but he attached no direct signification to it 
he thought his aunt was just a little foolish in her readiness to take offence for her protégé. "'Well, my dear auntie,' he said after a pause, "'I suppose you are right. No doubt women understand each other's feelings much better than we rougher creatures can comprehend the gentler sex. I could very well afford to part with four thousand pounds, and I fancied it would be nice for Lizzie to have a little income of her own, to fritter away upon small charities and presents to her needy brother and sisters in Blackford. But since you say it must not be, I must content myself with offering her some substantial present, a diamond bracelet or a pony carriage or something of that kind. What do you say to a pony carriage, with the most perfect thing in cobs to draw it, and then Lizzie could never be snubbed by my sisters when she wanted a drive. I think she would be absolutely enchanted. She is very fond of driving and adores horses. To have a cob of her own would be delightful to her. Tiny and Horatia have always been rather grudging in allowing her the use of the ponies. I'll see Jeb this afternoon and get him to look out for a cob. We must have something perfect and Dulliner of Avonmore shall build the carriage, as light and dainty a thing as Queen Mab's car. I would much rather have given her the railway stock, but if the pony trap will please her, I am content. This time you really have hit upon a brilliant idea, Morton, said his aunt, smiling at him. Not that there is the least need to make her a present of any kind. Such goodness as hers is always its own reward." i suppose that's why the recipients take so little trouble to show their gratitude answered morton laughing End of chapter forty three